Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is David. My wife Amanda and I have been coming here for about three months now. It is flying by. But hey, this is the first time I've had an opportunity uh, to address y'all in this capacity, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, I want to say thanks for how welcoming you were. From, from the first day we visited, we felt valued, we felt sincerely welcomed, and I, I wanted to use the opportunity to tell you thanks. And we're excited to be part of your, of your church family. Hey, um, we're continuing the study of Ephesians today. Last week, Kelly talked about, about marriage. Um, this morning, we're going to be, begin the final chapter of Paul's letter to Ephesus. And if you can remember, Ephesians is set up in a, in a pretty cool way. The first three chapters are about what does it mean to be a Christian? Paul talks about how, how we can live um, in the identity of Christ. The last three chapters, so what do we do with that? How do we behave? What should our lives look like? The focus of the scripture today is a lot about obedience. There's a little bit of parenting in there, which is kind of curious and a little funny why I am talking about parenting. I've been a dad for six or seven minutes, and it, only a handful of that time have, have I been just me and my daughter without, or without mom there. And actually last week during the service was the first time that we've been here with just us two. You all saw it. You all heard it for sure. Some of you smelled it. And uh, that's parenting a seven-week-old is, is different than real parenting. I think it's just about feeding them, making sure diapers are changed, um, making sure that you don't end up on the news. And that's really what it is. Another thing about parenting, though, that I've learned in this short amount of time is that it really rocks your theology. So who I view Father God to be is a lot different. It's added a new layer to it. Um, I'll, be, I'll be changing a diaper, for instance, and there's this mess that's been made. And I just want to come in there and clean it up. I want to renew everything. I want to make it fresh, bring something good into my daughter's life. And what happens? She kicks and screams and fights and resists. And at that moment, that's when I look to God and say, touche, I totally get it. And thank you, Lord, for not, for not giving up on me, for being patient while I stew in my own mess. Um, hey, let's pray before we get started. God, we thank you. Thank you for this church. We thank you for a safe place to come together where we can try to know more about you, to deepen our relationship with you. We thank you for this, these people here. God, bless this journey that we're on. Help us hear from you today in a new way. We thank you, Lord. Amen. But hey, let's turn to Ephesians 6. I think it's 829, page 829 in your Bible. We're going to start with verse 1 to 3. Molly, you got us? Thank you. Hey, preparing for this sermon caused me to reflect a lot on my own childhood. You have to, hearing that. And I, 
if you ever start to feel like a good Christian, like you're, like you're living a good Christian life, here's a good exercise for you. Step back and think about the times in your childhood when you disobeyed your parents. Think about that for a moment. For me, it wasn't very hard to do that. Um, I think about several times. I remember my parents always used to tell me, wear a helmet when you're riding a bike. Pretty simple command. Sometimes I did it, and sometimes it wasn't so cool. So I didn't. And one time I paid the price for that. I got my first concussion because I wasn't wearing a helmet. Should have listened to my parents. Another thing that my parents told me a lot was, wear sunscreen. When you go on a vacation, put sunscreen on. And sometimes I didn't have a choice, and they would just slap it on. And other times it was... Okay, I've been given this choice. You should wear sunscreen. And I didn't. And y'all remember how this goes. The first few days, you're, you're completely red. You're just a lobster. And there's no possible position that you can contort your body into where you're comfortable. And then after that subsides, you turn into a, like a life-size frosted flake. And you itch really bad. And, th- and that's how it was. And then by the time that's gone, the vacation's over. Get in the car for a 12-hour drive. Should have listened to my parents. Another thing that my parents said was, David, don't play with your food. And I didn't too much, but I saw kids at school who would take the goldfish or the popcorn and they throw it in the air and they catch it in their mouth. And I always thought that was really cool, but I wasn't very good at it. So I went home and I practiced, but I used grapes. And that was about the last time I disobeyed my parents um, because I almost didn't survive it. There's one part, though. There's one thing in my childhood that I think about, which is probably my worst offense of disobedience. Um, It was, I was 12 years old. My dad lived in an apartment complex that was one of those huge complexes with 100 units. And to get back to his apartment, it was a big maze. You had to drive all the way through and uh, apartments on both sides. And it was a few days after the 4th of July. So a few of the neighborhood kids had some fireworks still. And my sister was about 10 and I was 12. So we're playing with these fireworks. And I remember my dad always being really adamant about the safety with fireworks. Um, Hey, don't do anything stupid. You know, you light them, and that's it. They're done. If that was how this story went, I wouldn't be telling it. So um, even as a 12-year-old, I was thinking, well, what if, I, what if I throw these in the dumpster, these firecrackers? So I did. And they started, you know, igniting, and it sounded like bombs going off. And as a 12-year-old, there's not much cooler sounding than that. I thought, this is awesome. But we ran out of those, and all we had left were sparklers. This is These are probably the most boring. Sparklers are cool once, and then after that, you know, you're not really interested anymore. But my 12-year-old mind thought, hey, what if we throw these sparklers in the dumpster too? What would that be like? But even as a 12-year-old, I had the, I knew in my mind that was a risk. So I made a business decision, and I asked my little sister, hey, what, what, what do you think? Maybe we could throw these fireworks, these sparklers in the dumpster. And, you know, God loved my little sister. She just wanted to hang out with Big Bro, so she would pretty much do whatever. She took the sparklers, threw it in the dumpster. In goes the fireworks, and up go the flames. Uh, a literal dumpster fire. And uh, I was terrified what, what was going to happen. The flames kept rising. Um, people were coming out of the apartments. There are cars all over the place. The dumpster is, is surrounded by a wooden fence. Worst thing is there's a tree draped over. This is July tree was pretty dense it was draped over the dumpster and the flames were getting so close to that it's connected to woods i have no idea what was about to happen but my sister and i were just crying terrified um thinking we might not survive this and all these people here might not either but what happened was someone called 911, and a fire truck came and just as it was about to start singeing the trees they cooled it down they cooled down the fire The fire that my dad had going took a little bit longer to cool down. The text here, 
It says, honor your father and mother. Obey the fifth commandment. But unlike the other commandments, this one looks like it comes with a promise. It says, so that it'll go well for you, so that you'll have a long life. So what's Paul doing here? Who's he speaking to? Is this a literal promise? Well, actually, he's speaking to children. Is he speaking to just toddlers? I don't, I don't think so. It looked like a message that was directed at people who could hear it and respond to it. But he's speaking to all children, whether they're 12 years old, whether you're 70. The culture was different back then. Even when you're grown and adult, you were still connected with your family. So Paul had a message for everyone. It was for kids, if you're still in your parents' house, obey. Literally do what you're instructed to do. Um, And then even if you're moved out, honor your parents. That means respect them. That means show them gratitude. See, God, the creator of everything, including the institution of family, thought this was important. I think we should too. But the text reads like a promise. It's literally saying that the key to a long life is uh, to listen to your parents. So does that mean that everyone who didn't live a long life didn't listen to their parents? No. No, I don't think that's the case. In first century Jewish culture, there was something called Semitic Proverbs. And that's what this is. Um, it's basically what you know as a proverb. It's a wise saying. It's a guideline for your life. The Bible has them all over the place, not just in Proverbs. Look at James, for example. Prayer of the faith shall heal the sick. We've all prayed for somebody who didn't get healed. Um, you look at Proverbs, it says, the man of wisdom shall have no enemies. Well, sometimes that's true, but a lot of times the biggest truth tellers have the most enemies. And then David, in the book of Psalms, says, the righteous shall prosper. Does that mean that anybody who's not prosperous, anybody who might be poor or destitute, um, was unrighteous? No, I don't, I don't think that's fair to say either. Every culture has Proverbs. Current American culture, I remember... As a kid and in, in growing up in Kentucky, seeing billboards that would say, smoking kills. And I thought a couple things. Number one, why does everyone here smoke then? And number two, um, no, I, I, know, I know people who are elderly folks who've been smoking for decades and decades. And they're still, they're still here. So that's, it's not necessarily, lit, not necessarily literal. Um, you, you've heard an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Does that mean if we eat an apple every single day we'll never get sick? No, no, that's not what it means. Yes, smoking is bad for you. Yes, an apple might be good for you. But they're not literal promises. And in the same way, this fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, has this second clause. Not meant to be literal, but it is rooted in truth. See, life is better when we obey our parents. Um, It's safer. We make healthier choices. It certainly won't shorten your life. You can see what Paul means. We state it in the extreme Because it adds emphasis. That's what a proverb can do sometimes. Honor your parents. And in general, things will go well for you. But there's a lot more to the parent-child relationship. We'll look at that. Molly, can you get verse 4 for us? Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in in the training and instruction of the Lord. So what Paul's saying is with exasperate, he says, don't make your kids mad just to make them mad. Don't embitter your kids. Don't rile them up. Don't egg them on. Does this mean don't discipline them? No, of course not. It doesn't. You know, and kids are going to be mad at you from literally the day that they're born. (laughs) Uh, Reed's been mad at me every single day since she's been born. But here's what we have to understand. This message, this message that Paul's saying to parents is wildly countercultural. Okay. When we think of first century Roman Empire, 
Kids had no rights whatsoever. They, they had no say in anything. And people, unfortunately and tragically, would just abandon their kids for whatever reason they saw fit. Especially kids with disabilities. You know, the, some, of the, some people would abandon their kids if they were born and they saw that they were female. It took nothing. And Paul is saying, hey, don't aggravate your kids. This is, this is crazy against the grain of what was going on at the time. What's important is that that tension doesn't define your relationship, parent to child. Your discipline must be purposeful. That's what Paul's saying. So what purpose should our discipline have in raising kids? He says it right here. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Um, when, when Amanda was pregnant, we had a really simple prayer. And it was always, Father, please knit her together perfectly. Help her have, help her have great health. And it was also... Give her heart for Jesus. Soften her heart so that your will can be done in her life and she will recognize you as the Savior. That was our prayer. But when I'm up at night worrying about her, when I'm thinking about what her life might look like, do my concerns reflect the prayers that I had? Now, I would say I get tied up in some of the other things that don't matter as much. Paul could say anything right here. That's the point. It's a short command for parents. One command, actually, just for them. To train them in the Lord. I can't think of any more commendable aim for parenting. What we obsess about, what I think about a lot, is, uh, you know, I hope that, uh, I hope she makes good grades. I hope she excels in some kind of sport. I hope that some kind of extracurricular thing she can make her own. I hope that she gets a career that she likes. I hope she has good friends. I think about all these things. What if we're, what if we're getting it wrong? What if we're praying one thing and fixating on the other thing like, like I tend to do? Um, an author, a famous author and the, the founder of something called the Barna Group in Ventura, California, George Barna. Um, what he does is he uses data and statistics to study the intersection of culture and faith. It's pretty cool. There are, not, there are a few imitators, but no one quite does it like the Barna Group. And I'm reading a book right now called Revolutionary Parenting. And it's what it sounds like. There are literally 75,000, literally. Um, he talks about that in his beginning of his book. Books on parenting. And this is different because he tries to use data and look at what's worked. This is a quote from the book. He says, we, talking about parents, this is a message to, message to Christian parents. We're measuring our children's well-being based on the wrong standards. Without realizing that we've made ourselves the judge and jury of what's right and wrong, of what's useful and useless in our children's lives. And we base all this stuff not on the Bible. We base it on social norms. We've seen it in our own lives, what happens. Your achievements seem to fade and not matter. Your friends might leave you. Your health deteriorates. All these things seem to fall away. But the one thing that can last, the one, the best possible thing you can give a child is a relationship with the Lord. And Paul tells us that nothing is more important and that we can have a substantial impact on it. I said the message today was about obedience and submission. It, it far transcends parenting. So we'll look at a little further. Uh, Molly, can you do verses 5 through 8? Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, 
whether he is slave or free. All right, first things first. When I, when I read this and studied it, I couldn't really leave the whole slave thing. That was the thing that was stuck in my mind. And when, when I think of the word slave in, in this context, I think of pre-Civil War racially motivated slavery. That's where my mind goes. That said, this slave and master relationship that Paul's referencing here is not that. It's not that at all. Um, and actually, it could be more closely compared to the contractual relationship between an employee and an employer today. And this is not the same slavery that was America's infancy. See, make sure you hear this. Slavery in any form is abhorrent. It's a demeaning practice. Um, to, to be a slave is, is completely... Um, robs them of their dignity. And to be a slave owner is to basically concede your humanity. That said, this slave and master relationship that Paul's talking about is, is not that at all. Um, the Roman Empire was always expanding, right? This seemingly, what we found out was not, unbeatable nation was constantly taking over neighboring peoples. And they thought, well, what do we have to do to this? The reality of war is we kill them, we put them in prison, they didn't want to really do any of those. Prison wasn't a sustainable option anyway. So what they did was they, they had a system to integrate new folks, conquered people, into the Roman society. So they became slaves. And they, they would work for rich Romans for the smallest bit of capital. And eventually what they would be able to do is pay off their freedom and then become use their money to become Roman citizens. This is how they integrated people into their nation. There wasn't some kind of violent beatings. It wasn't racially motivated. And actually, all of our historical stuff tells us that race wasn't quite a thing. It was, skin color wasn't the division. It was more about your land of origin, your ethnicity, and sometimes your faith. <clears throat> and it was not good. But it's an entirely different conversation of the slavery we think of. And Paul says to the slaves, Obey your masters with respect and fear. And fear here just means, it means reverence. It means to recognize their authority. And look at this theme though. Paul, Paul flips the script for the bondservant. You can think of a slave as a bondservant. He says, respect your master, but not merely for your master's sake. What you're doing is serving Christ. You're doing the will of God. You are a slave of Christ. So God sees this and he delights in it. Whether we're a slave or free, whether you're the intern or the CEO whether you're the boss or the entry-level employee, God delights in that when we do work. This is one of those lessons that you and I have to learn over and over again as, as a follower of Jesus. Um, work, whether you're working at a nonprofit that, um, that helps people with visual impairments find jobs, or whether you're in consumer goods and you're making toothpaste at Procter & Gamble, there's no difference. God sees the work that you do, and he delights in it. It honors God when we do work. When we get up in the morning, we go to work, we do what our company expects of us, we do it with a full heart, we make use of the gifts that God's given us, and we honor Him. See, we forget sometimes that God put work before the fall. This is not a symptom of the curse. God said, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. I believe when we create, we're tapping into something a little deeper. When we create, we as image bearers of the creator are tapping into something much deeper and God delights in it. The king sees it. This doesn't always happen, but verse nine is probably the best. Molly, can you read the last verse? 
And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Again, do we understand how crazy this is? Paul is speaking to the masters of slaves. What an offensive proposition. These rich Romans who've been paying bond servants basically peanuts to be at their beck and call, he's telling them, hey, treat these folks the same way that they treat you. That means respect them and honor them and don't threaten them. No one in the Roman Empire thought this way. Again, it's not that they had an abusive relationship with their slaves, but no one thought this way at all. What Paul's saying is the relationship should be a reciprocal attitude of service. Why did he say that? Why did he say that? Because this. And it says, the end of verse 9 is this, what Molly read. When it comes to the king of kings, the master of everything, you and I, everyone else, we are all subservient. We are all subordinate. Hierarchy is gone. It's out the window. That's man-made stuff. God doesn't see that. The through line for Ephesians through the entirety of Scripture is the message of redemption. Taking what we mean for evil, our prideful pursuits, our quest for power, our insatiable quest for power, and God flips it on its head. He redeems it back for his good purposes. And you might ask, well, why didn't God just get rid of slavery? If all, if all kinds of slavery are bad, why didn't he just wipe it out? Could he have? Yeah, yeah, he could have. That's not the way God works. You know that. When you look, that's not the way Jesus operated when he was here. People looked at him and they thought, oh, finally we've got somebody who's going to be a political leader that will get us out of Rome, under Rome's thumb. They thought that. People, um, the religious elite in the church looked at Jesus and they thought, he, this guy's a threat. The people who ultimately got him killed thought, he's going to overthrow our little corner of the church. The truth is, that was not it at all. Jesus' life, his ministry, his death had a much, much greater purpose than all these present-day evils. And they were evil. But his purpose was so great, even most of his closest circle missed it. He was constantly trying to remind them, and they never got it. We miss it a lot. It's sometimes too weighty for us to wrap our heads around exactly why Christ came. As evil as slavery was, Jesus didn't come to get rid of slavery. He went after evil itself. Why defeat slavery and prostitution and war and corruption and the Roman government when you can go after the root that holds all that stuff together? It's sin. It's evil. That's why Jesus came. So Paul's message to the church was offensive because Jesus' work was otherworldly. The definition of countercultural. And although Jesus said, it is finished, and it is finished, we get to take part in his redemptive work as we wait in joyful hope. I'll tell you this, this one last story and we'll, and we'll start to wrap up here. Um, in 1820, there's a little girl, her name was Frances. She was born um, just outside of New York City, 1820. At six weeks old, they called her Fanny. Fanny got a cold. Fanny got a cold. And that could be devastating in 1820. And uh, one of the things they used in the day, because you didn't have prescriptions, it was all these home remedies, was they would crush up mustard seeds, and they would make a mustard plaster. And they would put it on an ailment, and it would typically heal it. The danger was, if you leave it too long, it'll uh, give you first-degree burns. And part of this cold was, Fanny had 
inflamed eyes. Her eyes were really swelled up. And her parents applied some, some mustard plaster, and it damaged her optic nerve, and she actually lost her sight. And uh, to add even worse scenario, uh, her father died when she was six months old, suddenly, and her mom was left in poverty. So her mom moved back in, took Fanny to live with grandma in the same kind of area, and they started going to a Methodist church. And while all the other kids were out playing and doing little kid things, Fanny couldn't really participate. She couldn't see. There wasn't a whole lot for blind, visually impaired back then. So what did she do? She took, she took to poetry. She started writing a lot. Super gifted writer. And uh, she went to church. And what she found was, I really enjoy all these gospel hymns. These really speak to me. I feel so alive when I hear them. What if I took my writing here, this poetry, and I channeled it to gospel hymns? And that's what she did. She spent her whole life doing that. She lived to be 94, made that her life's work. She wrote so many of these gospel hymns that um, the, the churches told her, hey, look, we can't take any more of your stuff because it's all from one person. It's weird. We need, you know, other people to contribute. So what she did was she made fake names. She just created pseudonyms, and we found that out much later. She didn't care about the glory for herself. This was just what she was born to do. Um, she created over 2,000 gospel hymns in her life. One of them, I know that y'all know really well, you know more than one, but especially this, because the worship band played it this morning. It's called Blessed Assurance. I want to look at this last verse because this, this really strikes me in, in this song. Fanny, Fanny said, perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness and lost in his love. See, you and me don't like being lost. We hate being lost, actually. And you hear this phrase all the time, people try desperately to find themselves. If you've ever had a period of trying to find yourself, it might have looked like this. I know I did. You just pour yourself into stuff that's empty. You try to fill up on stuff, experiences, possessions, whatever I think might give me some significance, whatever might tell me why I'm here. We want to find ourselves. Sometimes we run the opposite way that God's calling us. God says, I have your identity here. This is Paul's message. And when we disobey and we run from him to find ourselves, sometimes it ends in a dumpster fire, literally or metaphorically. This is one of my favorite verses. John 3.30 says this, He must become greater and I must become less. See, when there's too much of me, what room am I leaving for God? What room am I leaving for God? George MacDonald says, the one principle of hell is this, I am my own. If there's one principle to hell, it's I am my own. But when you and me make ourselves the beginning and the end, when we place ourselves on the throne, we're left empty. It's only when we lower ourselves in submission that we find God. When we place ourselves lower, we find God, we find ourselves, we get everything else thrown in. That's the paradox here. This crazy, offensive, super countercultural, impossibly amazing paradox of the gospel is that we lose ourselves and we find Christ. And nowhere else, our hope, our value, our strength, all of our pursuits, everything we want our future to look like is nothing outside of this one person, this one God. That's Jesus. Jesus crucified. As Fanny said, we find ourselves when we're lost in his love. 
So here's our, here's our call to action this week. What are we not submitting to God? What have we not turned over so that he can redeem yet? This is, we're approaching Thanksgiving. This is a perfect time for us to really think about all the things that we're thankful for. It's a long, long list. God gives abundantly. He gives us everything. Doesn't he deserve that in return? Doesn't he deserve all of us? And what's the one thing that we've resisted? You and me have resisted giving to him. To the, to the woman who was dead, Jesus said, rise. To the man who was crippled, Jesus said, stand and walk. What's that thing we need to turn over to God so that he can completely redeem it? Let's pray for the strength to do that. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for Paul's obedience We thank you for the wisdom shared, not just for parenting, not just for our work relationships, God, but obedience in general. Thank you, Lord, for telling us that we can stop this fruitless search to try to find ourselves. And thank you for giving us the answer in Jesus crucified. God, bless us this week. Help us to have uh, a feeling of gratitude like we haven't before. And we thank you, Jesus.